Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Exorcist, starring Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, Max von Sydow, written by William Peter Blatty, based on his novel, and directed by William Friedkin. Whew, today's going to be a tough episode, but welcome back to Rise Smile <laughs> yeah. Films. Let's we're, pour a stiff one on that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, we're continuing on this week with our William Friedkin cast, the films of William Friedkin, and from 1973, The Exorcist, uh, what many people consider the scariest movie ever made, scariest movie of all time, and we had some trouble recollecting prior to 1973 if a film audience had experienced anything quite so intensely. So, yeah, yeah, we'll talk all about that coming up, but having some more of the Old Forester Statesman today, so cheers, Matt. Cheers. <laughs> down, yeah, hard drinking Father Karras as well. <laughs> down the hatch. <laughs> a lot of hard drinking priests in this movie. Don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> let's well, let's just get right into it with our flight. Being that the Exorcist is from 1973, and back uh, last October when we did the the, the slasher cast and. Um, all the the stuff from the found footage we did kind of best of the 80s the 90s the 2000s i think 2010s but we didn't do best of the 1970s so what better time than ripe with the decade 1973 to list our top three favorite uh, horror films from the 1970s so like we do three three two two i'm gonna let you go first with number three number three the abominable dr fibes i love vincent price I can't say this is some terrifying movie that's going to leave you through many sleepless nights. But I do appreciate, I think, what's arguably his best performance in horror. You could go back to Laura if you want to go back that far. But it plays on revenge and body dysmorphia. There's certainly a bit of eyes without a face that you can find in that film. Not in so far as the doctor, but the surgeons who screw up the process and what happens from it. I just, I, I don't want to say too much about that because I'm hoping once in a while these inspire people to go and see these films. It's certainly time now to be watching stuff here. Yeah. Under right. Quarantine. Yeah. So this would be one that I would recommend. Um, it's sleepy in so far as a lot of people <clears throat> don't talk about it because I think a lot of the Vincent Price stuff mm-hmm. kind of got put on the back burner as schlocky, hammer yeah. horror, Roger Corman, mm-hmm. um, you know, but despite that, like Mask of the Red Death is really good. Mm-hmm. Pit and the Pendulum's really good. Um, this is even better. Excellent. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. I love Vincent Price. I have like a couple collections of a lot of his movies. Yep. And whether it's House on Haunted Hill or yeah. 13, uh, The Tingler or any of the, any of those films, I've always been a big fan of House of Wax. House of Wax, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. All right, you're three. Number three for me, I think it's 1975 that this came out. My favorite film from this particular filmmaker, Dario Argento, and it's Deep Red, otherwise known in Italy as Profondo Rosso. This is a film, this is a classic giallo, gialli, um, which, you know, based on those pulp crime films. So you got your black to glove killer. 
and it follows David Hemmings, who's like a jazz musician, as he witnesses a murder. And what's brilliant about this movie is it reveals the identity of the killer within the first 15 minutes. Like, and if you blink and miss it, you miss it. But then when you go back and watch it, it's it's there in plain sight look, looking for you. So it's a nice, tense uh, journey. And I, I think that's his masterpiece. Suspiria gets a lot of talk. Mm-hmm. But uh, this film prior with the, the musical score by Goblin, which is incredible, it's my favorite of all his films. So that's yeah, Deep Red. Nice choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, number two is The Omen. Uh, again, Gregory Peck with a stellar career before him in a little bit latter state. Um, elder statesman, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the corruption of the innocent through children. We talked about that a little bit today and what a kind of creepy trope that can be. Yeah. Uh, this is not something that people haven't heard of. The omen is on a lot of lists. Uh, it's really good. Um, but what am I going to say? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, I'm not going to get in too much on the omen because I don't think this is. Water that's never been navigated. Maybe I'll get too much into it because it's also my number two. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's have at it. I love it. It's it's another like what a crazy Ronald Sutherland. What a crazy time here in the in the seventies being um you know, just having all these films about the occult and whether it's mm-hmm. Wicker Man or Rosemary's Baby, which is late sixties. All these films about the satanic, you know, the antichrist and the devil and demons and possession. And a lot of them vary in quality, but to me, the Omen, Richard Donner's film, is one one of the better ones. You know, I'll never forget the that scene when he's riding the tricycle and Lee Remick like kind of falls like with oh, that yeah. rotating set and under her back. I love it. it. That that film made a lot of our best like kill list. Um, almost cracked our top ten horror films when we did that list uh, a few months back too. It's a great film, and, and the, the last kind of visages and the the images at the end when. There's two caskets, and he's been adopted now by the president of the United States or some high up U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. politician. Yeah, and he just looks at the, at the, at the camera there, just sends chills up your spine. Mm-hmm. Another great musical score in that one too. I love the Omen. I hope we can do. Maybe we might have to do like a whole like devil podcast and like do like that and like Rosemary's Baby and like Emily Rose. That'd probably be a pretty good one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Number one for you. You just mentioned it. Okay. It's the Wicker Man. Mm. That pagan May Day, forces of nature, um, re- ritualistic, sacrificial, <clears throat> oh, God, just creepy. It's um, sacrilegious, and you're not really supposed to do that, at least in my time in my life when I saw that I wasn't really supposed to see that. That was something that wasn't heard of. You weren't supposed to just blatantly. It has a lot to do with this film today, too. Mm-hmm. Like frown upon the established norms of the religion that I was brought up in. And although the exorcist does it to a different degree, this movie does it in a smaller degree, but a different way. Um, And this poor unwitting cop that just bumbles into his own demise (laughs) through seduction and pretty spring like images and feasts and, masks that are pigs and donkeys and just naturally occurring animals. Mm-hmm. When you get to the end, I'll realize as part of this very pagan occult like process that happens every so often just to keep things on the up and up with their pagan idols. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a rough film for me. Yeah. Um, Did you ever see the remake with Nicholas Cage? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Stick to the original. Uh, but yeah, the Wicker Man is <laughs> sure. today. This this list, there's yeah. three that I could 
have on this list that could be number one tomorrow that I didn't even mention today. Mm-hmm. So and I think we have a disclaimer right there, and I didn't say it prior, but we said obviously no exorcist because we're talking about it today, and like and no Halloween because that's like the super the fruits on the ground and already in my mouth movie for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's things don't look now, invasion of the body snatchers, there's other things <clears throat> and um, the Sentinel, there's things like that that. Texas Chainsaw. That wouldn't make it, but that's in the discussion. Um, Arguably Jaws and Alien fit the mold too. Well, and then like when we remove Halloween and The Exorcist, we're taking probably one and two off both of our lists. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's fluid, shall we say. But pretty, pretty good decade. Yeah, agreed. For mm-hmm. horror, sure, certainly. Oh, I forgot about The Sentinel. Right. Ooh, yeah. So, and Cronenberg's stuff like The Brood. And- the, well, that just missed two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, today, these are the three. If you ask me a week from today, sure. three different ones, I guess. Excellent. Although I think The Omen probably stays in there. Yeah. No idea, definitely. Let's hear your number one, Justin. Number one for me. So I'm going yeah, from 1974. You know I'm a slasher guy, and I think one of the, the ones to do it the best is Black Christmas. Yeah. Uh, just tone, you know. To me, horror has to set a specific tone. What I like about that one, a fairly bloodless film, much like Halloween, that really sets, you know, the POV rules and, you know, I love the ambiguous ending. I love the setting, which is, you know, part of like a slasher trope for me is, you know, where are these things set? University, uh, sorority house, campground, etc. But I think Bob uh, Bob Clark, who would go on to do Christmas Story, it's two very, those films parallel each other in very inter- interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Canadian slasher, it's just so well done. John Saxon playing the... The Sheriff Cop before his Nightmare on Elm Street days. It, there's just a lot to like about it from how it was made and to some of the stuff in it, the performances. It's always been a favorite of mine. It wasn't for Halloween. Would that be your favorite slasher horror oh, film? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And, you know, Halloween, you know, did a lot of stuff that Black Christmas did four years prior. Right. It just, it found the niche that, you know, blew it up into the stratosphere. Well, Black Christmas was kind of like a, it came and went kind of film. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Any consideration to sisters in this regard? Did that fit or is that a little too thrillery and not enough horror? Oh, I forgot about that one too. I know. I love that movie. Mm -hmm. Margot Kidder again. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. De Palma kind of found it. Carrie. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Just so many different choices to choose from as we're going to probably talk about today in our discussion, how horror just totally flipped on its head. And I think this film has a lot to do with that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get right to it. Good start. Good start. Yes. So happy hour time. <laughs> we might need another one here. And <laughs> uh, our review breakdown of The Exorcist. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain Howdy, yes. Look, there's one... Basic rule for life. <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to You know what the rule is? Don't play with the Ouija. Yes. <laughs> have you ever played with one? Hell no. I have. A couple times. You just, Jesse, you know better. You know what I asked it? We took it camping. Oh, no. with, we took it camping with us one time and we asked it two things. Am I going to make it home? <laughs> Barely. We, we said, Mr. Ouija, are you here in the forest with us? And it said yes. So I don't know what Mr. Ouija looks like, but he was lurking the woods that night. It's Captain Howdy's adopted brother. Yep. And then we asked it who was going to win the AL East that year, and it said Tampa Bay. And it didn't get that right, so Mr. Ouija's full of shit. <laughs> well, thank God, because at least that dispels it. Oh, yeah, man, man. That, like, <clears throat> from paranormal activity to any, the movie Ouija, we could go on. Like, just 
don't mess with that. But can't you say that this film sets the the trope of that? If sure. Prior to that, who would even think of a Ouija board as being so sinister? But what kills me about this too, mm-hmm. you go to a new department store in the children's section <laughs> and you go to the games and there's the Ouija board next to like Battleship. <laughs> it's a Parker Brothers game. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Or Milton Bradley, one of those guys. I mean, you want to get into some tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff. Where mm-hmm. do we go with that? Exactly. But the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. And when commerce sort of commerces again, haha, yeah. and we're able to sort of shop the way we used to, mm-hmm. give it a gander, folks. Like It's in the toy section for children next to the board games. Yeah, exactly. Shoots and Ladders, Candyland, Ouija. Battleship, Ouija. <laughs> Start them early, I guess. Yeah, start them early. Well, let's start with how this film starts out. So, you know, we have our, you know, our opening titles and then boom, we're in Iraq and kind of this kind of setup sequence, which is interesting because as we talked about, the film has a lot of these types of sequences that really kind of, what's the the word? They're there to kind of stretch things out a little bit. But for for me, what they do is they set a, a spatial toning, which... Hashtag Rice Smile Film Spatial Toning. So we're, we're setting our environment, but creating a tone within that environment. So here we're fo- following uh, Father Lancaster Marin, played by R.I.P. Max von Sydow. You just died like three weeks ago. Yeah, to that. Yeah. Who I always thought he was like 70 in this film. Yeah. And it wasn't until like a few years ago when I realized, oh, no, he was like 42 when he made this. Young man. Mm-hmm. It's all makeup. Mm-hmm. Dick Smith, made, we're going to talk more about him later because he's... He's an MVP on this film with the way he makes people look just so haggard, even just like Alan Burstyn, just like from actress to just like totally beat to hell by the end of the film. Worn out. We start with him and his kind of questing for religious artifacts. And then we kind of learn through the, this encounter with this this demon and this this orifice that he has, this what, what has come to be known. It's not told in the film to us, but through exorcist lore, this is called Pazuzu, the demon Pazuzu. You know, Blatty took from Babylonian and a lot of different um, mythologies to kind of create this demon. This is really grotesque demon. He's got like this big snake penis, too, (laughs) just like shooting towards the sky. The thing that this movie does to a much lesser degree than the novel does is play up the debauchery (laughs) that is the black mass element Mm -hmm. of this. And a lot of the bastardization of the Holy Trinity through sexual imagery or icons is really played out in Blatty's novel. Uh, there's quite a significant piece of the book that plays on what the black mask entails, or black mask, black mass entails. And most of it is some member of the hierarchy in Western religion being sodomized by some other demonic entity. And in this particular case, boy, uh, the demon statue Mm -hmm. is hung and (laughs) excited, shall we say? Yeah. And really unapologetic and, and it's a snake and play. Yeah. And and it's a snake, Mm -hmm. which then you can play the garden of Eden and all of those things out along with that. Mm -hmm. They set it up and subtly it continues to the rest of the film. Cause I think that bastardization Mm -hmm. of the Holy Trinity through sex is a pretty common theme in this film. Oh, definitely. And starts, it's like the eight minute mark and we're, erect statue <laughs> right i'm glad that you read the book yeah. now what did you think of it kind of overall i think um, we fell into that same camp that you know we've seen the movie and then then read the book kind of thing yeah so that was i don't want to say unfortunate but an unfair strike against it 
look, it's really well written. The father Karis and his struggle with faith is played out a lot more in the novel. I struggled with father Karis coming to example after example, after example of this possession and then him finding a way to try to walk it back. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because then if possession exists, then it's just flies in the face of his loss of faith and makes him even more troubled. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense in the story, Mm -hmm. but my takeaway is really well-written vivid imagery, a bit of a strike, not because it's own fault because I'd seen the movie after or before I read the book but I don't know if there's enough of a story there to be told in more than about 90 to 120 pages. Cause yeah, that's fair. There's just a lot of him sitting around talking heads at the table over coffee as what we really want to get back to is upstairs in the bedroom with Reagan. Mm -hmm. And we just don't spend enough time there. Yeah. But a good, like a good, well-written read, um, one and done. And I can check that box and I'm good. (laughs) What did you think? Yeah, kind of the same thing. Yeah. I think it follows the film pretty closely. Really actually. close, yeah. So the novel is actually inspired by the exorcism back in 1949 of Roland Doe, otherwise known as Robbie Mainheim. Mm. And it started with, you know, his aunt did give him a Ouija board, and, you know, all the psychologists tried to play it off as split personality and schizo until these priests kind of spent some time with him, and then it kind of all just kind of went to hell. Yeah. Boy lived, and... Uh, Blatty read this when he went to Georgetown in, in the early 50s that this was happening just down the road there in Maryland. Mm. And he came back to it to, to write this book when he was looking to cut his chops on something more horror-related versus the comedy world. Mm-hmm. And as I told you, you know, this is why I love Friedkin as a director because, you know, he's just so blatantly honest with you. And if something's crap, he's going to tell you it's crap. Yeah. So when Blatty gave him the screenplay of The Exorcist that he wrote... Um, Friedman was like, this is a piece of shit. This is, this is terrible. What are you doing? So what, what they did together, and this is great, like they just went through the book together and just bracketed what could be filmed and shown on screen, and they just kind of went through those passages, now turned that into a screenplay, and really try and shed, you know, because books have a lot of that just heavy exposition, like that mm-hmm. doesn't look great on film, so you have to take a lot of that out, and I think that's that improved the the, the feature film that we saw based on, you know, really toning down how tone looks on a screenplay is different than how a director interprets that. The omniscient element that novel presents is troubling in film because it all has to be from the POV of the audience. So when you can write in a book, something along the lines of it rained, have uh, it rained as the streets were washed in sin and jealousy. She ran the thick of her thumb over the sharp blade of a knife and contemplated what life after death was. Okay. All of that is really poetic and sounds good in prose form but in a screenplay that looks like exterior street night it rains period hard period interior kitchen night she strums a knife period like that's it's just very cut and dry so simple so simple Mm -hmm. and so i think blatty and his first foray into adapting this into screenplay probably just fell into the trap that a lot of people do and that's write a novel screenplay instead Mm -hmm. of just write a story screenplay Mm mm-hmm so good for Friedkin mm-hmm. to be patient enough to sit down and say, chapter four, we need these five moments. Because there are some cinematic moments in the novel, yeah. obviously, because mm-hmm. the mo- the novel becomes the movie. But like you said, there's a lot of prose that's exposition, and that just looks like two people at a table talking. Yeah. And no one cares. Mm-hmm. So um, good for Friedkin to have the patience to do that, because... I think that that story is remarkable because that doesn't happen. Most of the time they just fire the writer Definitely. and bring in somebody new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Very interesting. So then, then we're introduced to Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn, and you know, there's there's rats in this Georgetown house. Big rats this is like like gorilla rats, like Splinter, like doing Tai Chi. Yeah, <laughs> Splinter. But it's the sound. It's just the sound of the unknown and like what's scratch, scratching and clawing around up there. But then we're introduced to kind of the rest of the players, and she's this actress working on this. You know, what, I love how she pitches it. It's if Disney did a movie about Ho Chi Minh or something, <laughs> some just like just nonsense film. And well, Father Karras is there, played by Jason Miller, and he's kind of you know into the movie whole thing, and then kind of there as they're filming on the Georgetown University. But then what's really set up really nicely in this first twenty minutes is the relationship between Chris McNeil. And Reagan, played by Linda Blair, which, again, like, to the film's mastery and then Friedkin's direction, to cast a 12, 13-year-old girl for this particular role had to have been so daunting. And then what this girl gets put through, through the duration of this, it's such a good performance by by, Linda, by, what, by everything that's forced upon her to do. I think Friedkin handles that with care. And especially with, with kids, you know what I mean? Like, that's like such a tricky, you don't want them to be scarred for the rest of their life based on the content. But when she's so integral to the plot and the things that she's saying and she's doing, she's very self-aware of what this is about. That's a fine line. And I think the film handles that really well behind the scenes and in front of the camera. I think her age is really important. Mm -hmm. Being 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. and in some state, uh, not probably pre-puberty, but pubescence. Mm-hmm. I think it's more terrifying than if a seven-year-old is doing the same things. Mm-hmm. If you take a seven-year-old and take them through the same course of actions that Reagan goes through at 12, mm-hmm. it becomes really off-putting. You're like, this is just too perverse. Yeah. But the fact that it tickles, and I mean this with the greatest grace and respect that I can offer, mm-hmm. that it tickles womanhood a little bit and just so far as her growth mm-hmm. and then this unnamed demon yeah we found out the would you say the name pazuzu is? <laughs> okay um <laughs> that's terrible yeah yeah okay so pazuzu as we talked about earlier sexualizes her in a way that just becomes not i mean it's perverse it is but it's not so off-putting that i just want to turn the movie off as if i would if she's in a younger state but mm-hmm. it's close mm-hmm but it speaks to yeah. how far Friedkin was willing to go and push the envelope. Mm-hmm. And you just said it. It's a very fine line, but he navigates it successfully. And it's something that turned off a lot of directors, whether it was Arthur Penn or most notably Mike Nichols. A lot of these directors. Oh my God, I can't think of two worse choices. <laughs> Bonnie and Clyder, The Graduate, is a possession film. Yeah, but it turned them off because they were like, I can't picture or finding an actress willing to do this type of role. Well, you mentioned Anne Bancroft turned down the role of the Ellen well, let's Burstyn just, Let's role. just talk about the casting now. So yeah, Anne Bancroft or Audrey Hepburn for Chris McNeil, they <laughs> both have they both had their reasons for saying no. Yeah. And it kind of fell fell on to, to Ellen Burstyn, which is an interesting quite choice because a lot of the people in this film aren't like named stars of, of the, the time period. And people like Marlon Brando wanted the Marin role and Friedkin, again, to his credit, said, if we do that, this becomes a Marlon Brando film because of his personality so no, uh, Paul Newman for for Father Karras again. The, the the names are too big. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why going with like an unknown, like in the Superman role, Christopher Reeves is more believable than like Robert Redford. Uh, and I think that applies here too. The the fact that they're relatively unknown, you're able to buy into this domesticated story really well in in an interesting way. 
Yeah, so I think that that's all handled. But the casting was very difficult because people would catch wind. They knew what the book was about. They'd read the script. They're like, God, I, I can't I can't do this movie. You know what I mean? Well, in 1973, a big selling point in your film, and even today in 2020, is who is in the film. And if you're rolling out Max von Sydow, mm-hmm. Lee Jacob, and to Lee Jacob, who's a fantastic character actor, twice nominated for Best Supporting, but that that guy, like... A Claude Rainsy guy. <laughs> Total Claude Rainsy. Right? Yeah. And Ellen Burstyn. Mm-hmm. What name goes on the marquee? It None. The what title, goes on the, the marquee title. is the title mm-hmm. and that great movie poster, which is underneath the streetlight uh, looking up at the room. It's so good. With green letters, red letters. I'm not and even purple. Pur- yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Purple. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist. This isn't about the stars. Yep. This <clears> is about a character study and this poorly equipped priest to try to write, save this girl mm-hmm. yeah it's a great movie yeah, poster really no, but it's one of the best yeah, yeah i'd love to get my hands on an original one but i can't imagine what that would cost oh me. my goodness <laughs> thousands right. thousands so let's get right into the thick of it here so things are progressing along we get the, the scene with the ouija board and we're like yeah that's some of that don't seem right and she's playing with the captain um captain howdy and it just all seems a little weird and the rats are scratching around upstairs and it's not until Chris McNeil has this like Hollywood party with, you know, all her cohorts and Burt Dennings was just like jackass director. Yeah. You just total drunkard. And you know, they're playing, you know, just kind of tunes down there with the other father, father Dyer, who's kind of letting them know a little bit about Karis cause McNeil's interested cause she passes him every day on the walk home. And it's not until we get this moment where we're like, something's going on here. Yeah. You're going to die up there. He captured that piece sound a little too well, but it's like it's just the first moment of like irregularity with what's going on. Other than like the scratching of of Splinter upstairs, it's this moment here, and it's really off putting. Just something about you know just peeing yourself there on the on the floor and saying that is just so not what's been presented from Reagan McNeil thus far. Thing I like about that scene is it really does a good job of showcasing the relationship between mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. So at this dinner party where there's these executives and Hollywood types and this full of pomp and circumstance, air of formality, but plenty of liquor, you know, and that whole industry is networking. Yeah, I love that the mom cares more about her daughter than the effect that it has on the people at the party. Her first response is, oh my God, Reagan. And she runs to her and then kind of looks at her and says, honey, honey. And then to the people, I'm sorry, guys, she's not feeling well. And then leaves the dinner party to go upstairs and bathe Reagan. So Mm -hmm. basically says she's more important than all of you other types. And I think that's a really nice moment because one of the things that's key in this movie is how far this mom is willing to go Mm -hmm. and make me believe it to bring back her daughter from this abyss. I definitely thought about that at the end of the film when all said and done and they're going back to some state of normalcy. Right. How does she go make another movie after what she just went through? You know what I mean? Like mentally, I don't know how you can shift gears like that again. But it works out great. And I think that's to Ellen Burstyn and William Friedkin for (laughs) allowing that to happen that way. Mm Mm-hmm that we believe the relationship between mom and daughter. Cause sometimes that can come across as wooden, mm-hmm. um, you I know, mean, like they're playing the part, but you know that there's no chemistry. And so it's just like, okay, there's the proverbial kiss on the cheek. 
and oh yeah, that's mother and that's daughter. So they must be close because we're supposed to just think that. Whereas in this moment, you're like, oh wow, she she's really into her daughter and she's not her daughter. I'm reminding everyone mm-hmm. that's not her real daughter. Yeah. I mean, not in the script, in real life. Yeah. But they feel like a mother and a daughter. I think even more so because there's no father figure involved in this uh, relationship. Like he's whatever in Rome, won't even call her on her birthday. So this is all they got is really the two of them and their housekeepers, which play an interesting role here. I mean, me and you, you and I would have split like God. so quickly. I would split as soon as she started being on the floor there. Yeah. And then it comes to the what I consider maybe the most uncomfortable part of the film, which is the periodic test that now Reagan has to go through to prove what's happening with her. So first, instead of before religion, because... These Reagan and Crit, they're non-secular. They don't have any agnostic. They're no religious beliefs. Uh, you got to go the route of science. So she's sick. She's got like a, something. She has seizures. They, they prescribe her Ritalin. She's hyperactive. Just give her some Ritalin. And then she's like, oh, she's got a brain lesion. So then it becomes like this. And it's this stuff that freaks me out about hospitals. Just the poking and prodding to just figure out what's going on. And then we get to that that little bit there. And it's, it's, the, it's the cerebral angiography scene oh god awful it's just too realistic you know what i mean oh that probe that they put into her neck that just spews blood all over the place before he can cap it off Mm -hmm. it just it's almost worse than what she's currently the i mean it's going to get worse for her but (laughs) at this state yeah it's worse than what she's experiencing i mean not not to belittle this or bemoan the actions or what this would feel like the bed shakes a little bit and you have a little bit of insomnia versus of all these tubes stuffed in you and you're gushing blood out of your jugular artery onto this napkin. And that's the other thing too, that continues to happen throughout the rest of the film. And that's how much bodily fluid is involved in this movie mm-hmm. and who gets coated with it. Mm-hmm. And man, that's off putting because if you were doused with any of those, I blood, semen, vomit, what it, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. This movie does not shy away from that. Yeah. To the priests who take it like champs, too. (laughs) Right to the face. Oh, multiple times. All right, so I want to take the Rye Nation listeners to film school here for a little bit because, to me, one of the shining examples in this film and why it's so scary and why it's so uncomfortable for a musical score that's kind of here and there but not really present a lot like most films of the era. We don't have this pomp and circumstance like, John Williams fanfare in this film. Right. It's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But to me, some of the standouts on this film are Robert uh, Nudson and Chris Newman, who are the sound designers on this film. I just want to play you a couple of sounds because of just how off-putting that they sound. So this is when Marin's looking at the, at the Pazuzu uh, snake penis. just dogs fighting and just some ethereal spirit like talking between the two of them and then later this is the rat scratching upstairs and then in this particular scene we're talking about right now the cerebral angiography scene 
You got the x-rays coming up. Jeez. And down. So in a film where we're dealing with demonic possession and things of an otherworldly nature, the thing that's attacking us, I think, the most in this is the sound, the, the, the harsh sound and the way it's attacking us, I think, a lot through this film. And then my personal favorite in this film. Father Karras, it's an honor to meet you, Father. Marin. Rough. Yep. So to me, sound plays, you know, we have our story placement. We we've introduced the great acting and Friedkin's brilliant direction. But if there's no musical score for the most part, the environment has to be filled by something. And it's this brilliant sound mix that these guys rightfully won the Academy Award for, because it's, I said this last week, I I thought this was the best sound designed film of all time. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get so scared of it is because we're just being bombarded by stuff we don't know what we're supposed to be hearing. The beginning of the film with the opening credits come in in a pretty shocking, stark, shrill manner as well. There's no gentle strings. There's no grand interlude like you might have with John Williams and Superman. It's all sharp, hard, move you out of a comfortable space noise. And all of those examples you just gave or the whole film. I mean, looking at this statue and your score is two dogs devouring each other and then some guttural moaning that mm-hmm. is some clear communication device among the forces of Nefaria. Yeah. Man, as a as a viewer, you're really at some points, and you brought it up so well in the movie, mm-hmm. trying to find a place where you can just let your guard down for a minute because this movie is so good at moving you out of a comfortable position. Mm-hmm. And when you take the audience and put them back into that uncomfortable state visually and then blast them with the auditory sounds that you just provided, and mm-hmm. literally that one you were doing like the guns. It sounds like a machine gun. It's You're being bombarded. You're being assaulted mm-hmm. with these bullets of noise that are not at all comfortable or relaxing or friendly. It's just so unnerving. And I think that's why I find those like medical scenes so uncomfortable is they're just, they're unnatural. First of all, like they don't even do cerebral angiographies like that anymore. So that's unnatural. But then just the way it's presented to us is just so intense. Well, and then the other thing too, that's the sound we didn't even get to in that is just Reagan's voice as Pazuzu speaking. Oh, yeah, Mercedes McCambridge. Man, that's just... Yeah. You, you just awful. Yeah, we're going to hear... <laughs> <laughs> Drink up, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're going to hear more from her later, but... So they go through all these horrible experiments, and they're trying to put... This is why I love these religious tales, too, because there's no way to put a definition on it, because if you have someone who's a non-believer... Blame it on science, blame it on medicine, and find the 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 natural way of what's going on in someone's brain. And right. then there's the spiritual side of it. And I think you and I growing up as Catholic, like we struggle between because we've gone to the doctor when we're sick and not, but we also went to church too. Uh-huh. So where do we fall? Like we're in the middle of that. Like which side do we swing on? Yeah. It's an uncomfortable place to be, and the film puts us there. Right. Yeah. And out of state in my life now that is significantly 
further advanced than when I initially saw this film, I'd like to think I've come to a better place of making my own crossroads at that, like moving through that conundrum more successfully than I was at like 11. And yeah. um, I have to make an admission. I don't know if I am that much more better at it than I used to be. Sure. Even then. Yeah. Look, you know, she's possessed. Mm hmm. And you're going through the rigmarole in the doctor's office of them just continually watching failure after failure to come up with, uh, really, this is a brain lesion. Yeah. The bre the bed bouncing on the floor is a brain lesion. Look, you quack. <laughs> That's not a brain lesion. Yeah, because then we get this next scene and you think this would be enough evidence, but I guess not. <laughs> You think that would be enough evidence to say, hey, maybe something else is going on here. But then they still, then the, the, the next quack doctor um, goes on to say, like, it's the Incredible Hulk phenomenon. Mm -hmm. She possesses strength. You know, it's that woman that if her car, child's pinned, she's able to lift the car up. Like, this is that type of phenomenon, which you're just like, okay. <laughs> Unless you're Dr. Banner. A great episode of the Incredible Hulk. We're trying to remember which one it was, but we can't. Right. Yeah, the Bill Bixby version. The other thing I forgot I forgot to mention too is in those radi radiology scenes, the actual radiologist tech was like an actual like killer, like convicted years later of murdering people, which is just nuts. That's just like the urban legend. Like it, it's true, but that's just like the curse of this film, if mm -hmm. you want to call it that. Just mm -hmm. like everything post Exorcist Ugh. kind of a thing. I just don't think it's possible to take Reagan and make her any more mm -hmm. clearly possessed than this movie does, and yet watch these imbecile doctors continually misdiagnose and through the purpose of their own research, validate their own clearly ineffective methods to bring this girl back from some level of insanity. She's not crazy. Mm -hmm. There just was a lump that grew in her throat and went away. Yeah. That doesn't happen in any medical condition, psychosomatic or otherwise. And what it does then is it creates a level of frustration because you know we have, plus the title of the film, man, you know what's coming. The Exorcist is not about a guy that sells yogurt on the street corner mm -hmm. or about medical practices. It's about an exorcism. Yeah. So we're trudging through this uncomfortable forest where every tree is just another example of the inability of man in a Western way mm -hmm. to cope with this condition. And then when one of the doctors brings up the idea of like, we might want to try an exorcism, the mom who's been willing to try to find any light mm -hmm. in this dark harbor of nothingness yeah dismisses him and she says your medical diagnosis is to send my daughter to a witch doctor yeah and frankly the answer is yeah yeah mm -hmm. at this point 
Let's talk about the two other things kind of trudging along at this point, giving us some levitation between all this Levit- <laughs> insanity. Levitation. Which is Jason Miller, his father, Karis, and his relationship with his mother yeah. as she's deteriorating and ends up. And you were, this might have been the most uncomfortable you were in the entire film when she ends up in like whatever, like neuroscience ward. Ugh. And all the, the women in there are just like grabbing at him and Ugh. like want like a blessing or, or something. Very uncomfortable. And she's obviously elderly, and he wants to put her not in a place like this, but like a, a retirement home of some sort. And here she is. She's had this episode, and she's lost it at this point, blaming Demi, not my Demi. I think lost is the word that I kept going to. This is a medical facility filled with lost souls. Mm-hmm. Isn't that and also? He is, he's one, too. And so is Reagan. Mm-hmm. And so is kind of everyone in this film, save Father Marin. Yeah. And the problem with Father Marin is he's very, very fragile. Yeah. As we've already seen his Pop, problems. Popping with, baby aspirin like no one's business. Keep his heart beating. Mm-hmm. This is your conduit to re- bring Reagan back. This guy, oh, <clears throat> God. But yeah, him trudging through, I think it's a mental war, Jesse. Yeah. This is this asylum yeah. that's filled with all of these women that are lost and crazy and ghastly and emaciated to his mother who at this point wants nothing to do with him because she's so pissed off that he allowed her to end up in that place. He meets her at the bed and her, her cheeks are streaked Mm -hmm. with more bodily fluid tears in this case. And he's like, mom, I'm here trying to console her. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to get you out of this. And she wants nut. She's furious. So Mm -hmm. she's mad at him. He's not even going to get to tell her goodbye. Because she's going to die. Mm-hmm. And I guess they eventually do get her home. Yeah. She's going to die and no one finds her for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's how absent he's been from her life. Well, she lives in New York and he's living, doing work in Georgetown. But isn't that the metaphor for Reagan mm-hmm. and her dad as well? And sure. I think that plays into why mm-hmm. Father Karras That's will good. go to the lengths he goes to for Reagan. That's good. Guilt. Mm-hmm. Because Reagan's dad is in Rome, the capital of Catholicism. Think about that, right, Nation? Yep. Reagan's dad is in Rome. What else is in Rome? Well, the papacy. Mm-hmm. And Father Karras and Father Marin are here at Georgetown having to fulfill the role of Reagan's dad, <clears throat> not only because Father Karras is so guilt-ridden over his inability to give his mom a pleasant goodnight before she leaves this earthly plane. Mm-hmm. Man, there's a whole lot of subtext working into why these characters are acting the way that they do. Sure. Yeah, really disjointed relationships between their close loved ones. Let me give you one more. Mm -hmm. So if you don't call a priest a priest, what's the other thing that you call them? Father. What? (laughs) Father. 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 Think about that. (laughs) Father. Yep. To Reagan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's really nicely crafted. It is. Okay. Yeah. And then the other thing kind of happening here, and we kind of balked at this, you know, in the novel and then kind of in its betrayal, but it's it's the Lee J. Cobb element, Detective Kinderman, who after the the spider walk sequence and the the murder of, of Burke Dennings, he's like tasked with investigating what happened here. And I, I always feel like he knows just like right from the beginning, just like he is trying to find the truth between all this craziness, which no one else wants to believe. But he presents a really interesting kind of thing. So he interviews uh, Karis there while he's running the track and telling him his neck was completely twisted all the way around. 
And it's through his manipulation and his intrusion into this scenario, and especially Chris McNeil's life. There's that scene there where he says, would you like some more coffee? And that's a sign to, like, get out. Mm -hmm. And he's like, sure, I want more. And she's just like, get out of my house. Like, you can't be here. And I always love that line, too. And he's like, like, you know what, Father? Like, they said you look like a boxer, but you know, you look look like Sal Minio. (laughs) Yeah. Plato from Rebel Without a Cause. And then again, that plays into a whole lot of mm-hmm. sexual identity mm-hmm. and the papacy and fatherhood and priestliness and <clears throat> the relationship with Father Dyer. Mm-hmm. Like even that is loaded. What I like about the Lee Jacob character, Kenderman, mm-hmm. is he's so passive aggressive, mm-hmm. but Ooh, friendly good. in the way that he does it. <laughs> hey, would you like to go to a film with me? The perfect definition of him. That way I can intimidate you and interrogate you for two hours, but at least we'll have a nice film to watch at the same time. And, you know, the book does it a little bit differently than the movie does. In so far as his portrayal, it's almost like in the book, like as I was reading through the book, I kept asking, man, is Father Karras, and not that I have an issue, but it just adds another layer of conflict to Father Karras. And it's kind of a, an actual position that the Catholic church continues to struggle with. Mm -hmm homosexual nature of their relationship among the priests. And it's even addressed in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, not in so far as if he is or isn't, but this is something that the papacy is yeah. trying to quell. Yeah. Okay. So if you roll up on somebody and continually ask them out to a movie, <laughs> yeah. it's a date. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. Jimmy or Jesse, it's a date. Yeah. So yeah, <sighs> You just find yourself, or at least I find myself, so struggling with all of these elements that are closing in on Father Karras. And this guy, because we've spent so much time with him, you have to at some point in the movie deduce it's really his movie. Mm -hmm. He's got to figure all this out for Mm -hmm. Reagan to come back. And you like Reagan because she's a really nice little girl before she becomes demonic Pazuzu. Yeah. You want her back. Yeah. So it's just... Even in the moments, and you said, I loved what you said. Yeah. There's moments where we just get the people talking to each other, and it's a chance for the audience to maybe relax and let their guard down. And the minute we do that is the minute Kinderman shows up with his 50 questions. And if that's not enough, all of these other elements that are conflicted to never let the tone get like if the if the moments in the bedroom are eleven, mm-hmm. the movie never gets less than like seven and a half. Mm-hmm. And that it's just it's just an intense film. Yeah, and that's you know, to Friedkin's credit to pace it that way. So now we have this Kinderman questioning scene. Then literally, I said to you like, hey, "This is great because in about two minutes we're about to be hit with this." That scene you just played Mm -hmm. changed my life. Yeah. The first time I saw that, you could not, like you couldn't do that in horror. Yeah. And then for me, younger version me, you could not do that in horror and you could not do that with the crucifix. I think that changed the pulse of the American film going audience. They'd never seen anything like this before. I looked at my friend, Mm -hmm. Andrew, and I said, I'm going to hell (laughs) because I, I couldn't watch that. Yeah. 
I was so stuck in the guilt and a Catholic, so Catholic and guilt go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. Of watching that, and she's just covered in blood. Yeah. Oh my God, Jesse, that scene in that moment. I'm not kidding. That's not an exaggeration. I'm not being bombastic. That scene changed my life in film. I think it changed a lot of people. Like, because we, we had a conversation when we were watching it. Like, had a film going audience seen anything this intense prior to this? And the best we could come up with the shower sequence in Psycho, maybe some body eating and night living. This is a, yeah. that's black and white too. Mm-hmm. This is full color, close up, the sounds bombarding you. It's a, it's a sensory overload. It's it's risky. It's risky on Friedkin's credit to do it the way he does and for Warner Brothers to include it in the film. And I'm glad this, this, this stayed in because of the tone it sets for the rest of the film because this is a breaking point for Chris McNeil, in my opinion. Not only does she get slapped across the room that totally wrecked Alan Burstyn's back for the rest of her life. It's the point where it says, I got to look at this other option, this option of exorcism. So she goes to Father Karras to to see, and he says, no, you don't want to go that route. If anything, like go back to the 1600s because no one's done that in years. And you need all this permission and all this evidence. It could take weeks. It could take months. There's all this hesitation from everyone's perspective, except for Chris McNeil, who's the only one that says, I have to do something to save my daughter because what's up there, that's not her. Go all the way back to Ghostbusters. We talk about the pacing and the beats of the film. And mm-hmm. the most important beat in the film is the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment when the protagonist has to take on the quest despite all of their efforts to not <clears throat> want to do it. And we're at that moment, and it's an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes yeah. in the movie. Mm-hmm. We finally get to Karis, and she presents, like, I need an exorcism. And he's like, you need a time machine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. No one's ever done that. It's antiquated. Um and so we get the moment where the exorcist, mm-hmm. which is a character titled story. So mm-hmm. this is a character story about father Karras. Yeah. Decides I'm not going to do this. Like I'll still help you. Yeah. I'll come check it out. I'll come take a look at her as a, as a psychiatrist <laughs> or a psychologist. And yeah. she's like, how many of you all do I need to talk to so that you can refer me back to the medical profession that referred me to you. And we just stay in this ridiculous loop. Mm-hmm. And we can say that about the medical profession until we're blue in the face. <laughs> we chase our tails, right? Yep, yeah, exactly. He's got to decide at some point to take this cause on, knowing full well that if he does, he's not equipped to do it. So he brings in the expert, which is going to be Father Marin, mm-hmm. who's specifically asked for by the demon. Yeah. Pazuzu. And you would think like some of these elements here that I'm about to play would be like enough to be like, yeah, maybe something weird's going on here too. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm that devil. Now, kindly undo these straps. And I'm out the, the door. Why not let the straps disappear? <laughs> That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Mm. It's one of my favorite lines. Mm. Where's Reagan? In here with us. It's great to go with Mercedes McCambridge for the voice of demonic Reagan, like, because it's just so guttural and just so otherworldly. And then the, the the Dick again the Dick Smith makeup effects the way she's done up now she has the, the the cuts and abrasions on her face her eyes are green the room's totally freezing which freaking purpose they built this room in a freezer to elicit actual like a breath effect that the, there was that natural temperature change up here it's all just really well uh, uh, 
planned out here are these sequences. So then he's kind of going through the rigmarole and going through the process and trying to figure out, yeah, maybe something's going on up here and, and trying to kind of make, you know, some sense of it. And then she she pukes on him. Ugh. And this is great, too. So freaking used a lot of old, back in the day, you know, your 50s, 40s, like directors are pretty intense with actors. There was a lot of manipulation involved. So freaking used a lot of those tactics. So in this instance, he told uh, Jason Miller, he's like, he's like the vomit's going to hit you in the chest. So like when you re- react to it. But the vomit's going to hit him in the face. So in order to kind of throw him off guard a little bit to get like a more guttural reaction from him. And boy, does it. Oh, gosh. That pea soup. Like I could never eat pea soup again after watching this film. Oh, yeah. Campbell's hates this movie. <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> they do okay with cream of chicken and chicken noodle, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But then there's a really interesting sequence after this when he is giving mass and you and I were like reciting the mass with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the way he's doing it, he's so disconnected from the service because yeah. he's thinking about what's happening in that room. And he's like, I have to, he's not saying any of this, but my interpretation is I have to help her. I don't know how something weird's going on up there and I'm struggling doing this. When that's going on up there, I think the word I like in that is forsaken. Um, you have some time. Do you want to play? I'll let you do it. The blood of the new and everlasting covenant, the mystery of faith. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. Ugh. <laughs> that doesn't sound like an exorcism. That sounds like some precoital <clears throat> talk. Yeah. Intensely. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, if you're Father Karras and you already start the film off in a position where you're asking to have a change of your job in the Jesuit order because you don't like what you're doing, you're clearly in a crisis of conscience or faith state. As the movie continues, he continues to run into moments where the people that should be looked after by the person he's sworn allegiance to, that is the Lord, has forsaken them. Reagan himself, his mom. And as he's giving that mass and we're watching him break the Eucharist, getting ready to serve, get ready to serve the communion. Like you can tell he's like, this is all such BS. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this in some ritualistic metaphor over the body and blood of Christ to cleanse our sins. And right now is when I need you the most. And you're nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. This little girl, my mother, myself, everyone is miserable. Where are you now? And I think it's a really important moment in the movie because again, you look like our chief protagonist has zero shot against a centuries old demonic entity that is literally playing tetherball with a ghost, the ghost being Karis. What do you think of Jason Miller in this role? He's terrific. Yeah. He's terrific. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything before or since other than Exorcist 3. Yeah, he does a bunch of Exorcist films. And I was actually, when we were watching the film, I was looking it up. It's all in the same general. He's got a, a filmography. Well, he was actually a practicing priest, or he went no to school for it for like three years and then got tied into acting and freaking saw him in this Catholic play that was freaking said was terrible. Really? And they had. Um, oh, Catholic play. <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> Yeah, and they had another actor, another actor, kind of tied up in the role. I'm going to say Albert Finney, but that that's not right. I'll look it up here in, in a bit. But they had this other actor, and they they brought him in to do a screen test, and he just killed it. Like mm. that kind of 
being tied into both worlds, the world of Hollywood and then the world of the church. Mm-hmm. He sold it like altogether. They, they, he had Warner Brothers buy out that other actor's contract because they needed this actor instead. Good choice. Yeah, big time. Well, William Friedkin just does such a good job. Mm-hmm. Everything just in so much control and so so much foresight in this movie. Well, it's hard to give a director complete control, but after the French connection, when you totally just win the everything in Hollywood, you get a little carte blanche in Hollywood. You get a little room to play with. It's how important that movie is. If the French connection doesn't win the way that it does, this movie never sees the light of day. Well, he's not making it, at least, and it's nowhere near, I think, the capacity that it is. Right. His foresight to kind of shoot it again, very documentary-like, much like the French connection, some of these sequences... And to push the envelope time and time again is the reason we have the film that I can't think of a lot of horror films from like, like other than like the, the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s and the 90s that still pack a wallop the way this film does. Yeah, well said. I agree. 45 years old this movie is. Crazy. Yeah. Still plays. Still plays pretty well. So then he goes in with the tape recorder, Father Karras, gets all this great audio and he said it's it's talking backwards, it's like in the garden in the garden of eden type of thing and it's 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 saying like like she's gonna burn in here and that's when it starts calling for father Marin and this and that and then it's not until we get that moment where sharon the housekeeper brings him when everyone's asleep and it's like very nightmare on elm street like it's written these letters on reagan's chest saying help me like this internal struggle with this monster something's calling for help now, if there's evidence is astronomical at this point, but that's like the, the kicker for him is to go to the church and saying, look, it's there. We need to do something. They're like, you want to do this? He's like, yes, I do. And he's like, he's like, we need to bring someone in, someone who's done it before. And it's this whole unspoken backstory with, again, that's why we got two versions of the same prequel with Stellan Skarsgård as Father Marin. They're both terrible. But this whole thing, because he's gone through this process before, he's performed an exorcism, and it's taken such a toll on him. Like, you can see just how weathered he looks. Mm -hmm. And so they rope him in, and now it's game time. It's time for, you know, the final section of the film, the exorcist, the exorcism portion of the film. And all the preparation, you know, can prepare you for, you know, whatever. But once we step into the threshold of that room with these two priests, this film takes goes into a totally different like stratosphere i love the few moments right before they head up the stairs into reagan's room to do the exorcism we're watching them get dressed Mm -hmm. it's literally two knights equipping themselves in their suits of armor with their weapons yep um and it's just the regalia of the the roman ritual that Mm -hmm. is worn by i guess priests yeah and the choice of colors and the gowns that they wear Purple. and then who's the master mm-hmm. and who's the the squire almost if you will yeah and now clad in their suits of religious armor very crusades like they head up Ooh, the that's, stairs that's good that, i'd never thought of that before to tackle this demon right mm-hmm. um i love max von Sito in this scene he has such command over it and i love the way he plays it this is not his first rodeo. No. So as he's getting blasted with pea soup in the face and mm-hmm. Karis is obviously disturbed that he forgets his response to the ritual of his sections of the prayer, uh, Father Marin has to kind of like, Damien, the response. Like he's like so in tune with trying to bring life back to this little girl and Damien's really bothered by the whole thing, really. I don't know. I wish I'd looked, but I don't know how long that first 
sequences. It's one round. It's at least 10 minutes. And it feels like hours in the movie. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. If they walk into Reagan's room Mm -hmm. and the level of possession is 10, Mm -hmm. just assigning an arbitrary number of 10 to that, Mm -hmm. after round one of the exorcism and these priests now in this exhausted state, what level of possession is still Reagan in? Yeah. 9.8? Exactly. It has done nothing. Well, in the book, don't they? It's a couple days, right? Days. Yeah, that it lasts. You see, this is another great choice to the film because then it keeps the gas pedal on this final sequence to kind of keep things moving to some some sort of conclusion. I think it's very clear this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. They make, <clears throat> there's no difference. Matter of fact, after the first exorcism, it's so bad that Karis is asked to leave by Father Marin because Pazuzu spins him out over some dialogue that he never got to have with his mother, and Pazuzu takes on the voices of his mother. Help me, Demi, help me. And Father Karis loses it, <laughs> and Marin says, you need to leave to go get your wits about you, and I'll just take this next round by myself. And all of that is preceded by him in the bathroom. Popping some baby aspirin. <laughs> to keep it, oh, they're just... There's no way they're going to be able to undo this. Well, there's that great sequence, too. So after, we'll get back into the room here in a a second, but after the first go-round, they're just exhausted, Exhausted. sitting on the stairs, just like... Wiped And I always wonder, like, what's being unspoken between the two of them, which is just totally my opinion, but it's like, there's no way. Like, there's no way we can... There's no winning this. There's no end game in this scenario. She dies. That's the end game. Right. Yeah. Right. They don't want to say that because then they fail. They're going to do their damnedest to do their best, but there's a moment of defeat in that unspoken sequence. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole room exorcist thing, this is just, oh, my God. Like, every curse word and just <laughs> cocksucker. Like, I'll just every obscenity and tongue wagging and just bed levitating and Reagan levitating and vomit spewing and door breaking and uh, IV bag smashing. Like, it's just everything that's just thrown at them. And I love that image when they're just, it's like an earthquake in the room. I can't imagine. The only thing missing in the scene, which I wish the film would have done, would be like just a quick cut to downstairs to like Reagan and like Sharon or the housekeepers listening to what's going on upstairs just to kind of get their take on like what's happening up there. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Before we start the exorcism, when Marin first shows up, Father Karras a couple of times tries to inform Father Marin about the different personalities that have manifested themselves through this demon in mm-hmm. Reagan. Mm-hmm. And Father Marin just keeps kind of shrugging him off and saying, no, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Looking back at it from, and I don't mean critical in film, I mean critical in the characters in the movie. <clears throat> is it in Marin's best interest to play it out like he does? Or do you think Marin has a better fighting chance if he listens to the backstory that Karis is desperately trying to give him? Now do I you can't... want him to know that? Now, I kind of, I can't remember the plots of they're so forgettable, those prequels, but like, I feel like if he said, yes, tell me, mm-hmm. that's what he did in the past. Mm-hmm. Let me know as much as you can. And based on that experience of what he's already gone through, what again, what's unspoken and untold to the audience is, no, I don't need to know because I know, I know what, what this is. And I know the only way to attack it is to think of it as this. No, I think the way he approaches it is the only way to win. What's also interesting in this since the demon calls for him by name, they have a history. Mm-hmm. 
he's exercised this demon previously. He met him in Iraq. We come to find out that the statue with the snake erection <laughs> is actually the earlier yeah, version of the same demon, Pazuzu. Yeah. That name's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I don't think it's been... I'll tell you what's not stupid, though, is those subliminal flashes we get of Pazuzu. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, my God. We put one on Instagram that is just... That's blood-curdling. I know. Oof. Ghastly. Yeah, <laughs> ghastly, exactly. So they've had a previous history together. I don't think it's ever been squared off man on demon fighting, but like they're familiar with each mm-hmm. other. And then it gets to the question of, has this whole plot been for Pazuzu to bring Marin back into the fold so that he can make him pay for whatever he uncovered in Iraq some years before or some months before. Could be. Yeah, we don't know, but it's another layer to this. Is this some orchestrated plan that's been set up since the first seven minutes of the movie? And if that answer in your mind is yes, Mm -hmm. it only adds further challenge to how difficult this task is going to be of bringing Reagan back. And at this point, after the first round of exorcism, I've assigned myself to this. They're done. (laughs) It's curtains, man. You're going to have to find something else that's not going to be words and scripture and a vial full of holy water because you just threw it on her and she levitated, man. It's not working. In the name of the Father and of the Son the Holy Spirit by this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Damien! Amen. God! Defender! I just gotta share with you again the brilliance of the sound design so the revelation of Reagan's neck was literally them with like a wallet with some like credit cards in it crunching it in front of the microphone really yeah again the simplest things can just make the most otherworldly sounds yeah and it's just that experimentation with design that is just so brilliant here so after after the failure of this first go around you know yeah go take a break damien i'll take over here and it's when he goes back upstairs you know Marin's had a heart attack or been strangled or we don't know what's happened to him but he's dead What's even more eerie than Marin dead on the bed is the way that Reagan is leaned up against the bedpost. Just looking at it. And you can't quite tell if it's maybe the reemergence of Reagan with pity and sorrow. <clears throat> but even if that is what you initially take from it, it changes pretty pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Because then we get the giggle and the laughter of like, I got him. Mm-hmm. And so now Karis is just enraged. Yeah. It just lets her have it. Knocks her off the bed. Take me. Puts her on the floor and mm-hmm. just starts beating the ever-living hell. Well, out we, of her. we saw that scene of him boxing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then says, Why don't you come in to me? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, Pazuzu obliges. Yeah. Jumps right into Father Karras, and we see the manifestation of that demon take place. His eyes go a different color, his skin gets that greenish, opaque-ish. Mm-hmm. And we see that Pazuzu is now in him. And then immediately it's to, I'm going to strangle Reagan yeah. on the floor. And we get that great moment. Mm-hmm. So, so quick. It's yeah. like a second where we see the ghastly, ill-colored version of Father Karras possessed by Pazuzu return mm-hmm. to a flesh flush mm-hmm. colored state. Yeah. So he's conquered him enough to subdue the demon. And how does he do it? 
Jumps out the window. Which is what we've already seen down the steps, which is how Burke Dennings was killed earlier. Yeah. And tumbles to his ultimately demise at the end of these stairs. But at least, I guess, this is the question, though. The demon's been subdued. I don't know where it goes next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at least it's been subdued. Yeah. At what cost? Yeah, two dead priests. A lifetime of... Other than, like, Reagan not remembering it until the sequel where they pump it out of her. Yeah. The two dead priests, she doesn't remember, but the toll that it's taken on everyone associated in this film is just astronomical, in my opinion. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how you go on after this. You can't. Well, you have the house. Literally, the next scene is them packing up. They're going. They're moving to Europe, I guess. And the housekeeper's saying, "Would you not reconsider staying on with us?" And the housekeeper's like, "No." Like, that's like a hell no for me. Like, <laughs> after the last couple of months, there's no way I can go through that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's all just, it, and then we get, the, you know, the kind of just tying up of everything. They, they give the um, the little kind of little medallion to, to Father Dyer. Let's stop at that for one second. Yeah. Isn't that medallion the one that Father Marin finds in Iraq? Oh, that's what I thought, too. And it's buried next to the idol that is the representation of Pazuzu mm-hmm. in Iraq. Yep. So it's almost like that idol is <clears throat> buried there. As a barrier, yeah, to prevent Pazuzu from escaping whatever crevice in the middle of God only knows where <laughs> Iraq, and then it's actually not Karis's. If that's the same idol that or same medallion, it's not Karis's; it's Marin's. Yeah, which is odd because then the homage that they're paying is actually to the priests who had significantly less involvement and actually didn't save Reagan. Because mm-hmm. if it's the same medallion, it's got to be. I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah then it's almost like there's been another layer of forsakenness that's been put on poor Father Karras. Well, that's and the medalli- Father Karras. That's the medallion, too, that was in his dream sequence, falling. <sighs> yeah. So then we get this back and forth of who's going to get it, and they give it to um, Chris, and she gives it to Father Dyer, and then Father Dyer gives it back, and we kind of play tennis with it for a minute. <laughs> and it doesn't even matter because you don't know if they're giving it to the other one to get it the hell out of their possession or if they're giving to it protect back you. to protect. Mm-hmm. And frankly, in this regard, I'm taking my chances with not having it <laughs> because yeah. it was, even if it is to protect mm-hmm. the thing escaped some little sand trap trap in <laughs> Iraq. Yeah. And father Marin died with it on his possession. So I'm just going to roll the dice and say, you keep this and I'll take my chances with no Ouija boards. <laughs> exactly. There's again the lesson. Yeah, exactly. So then we get this final kind of, and this is the like this is the extended version. This kind of final parting stuff with Kinderman and Dyer, go see a film. But like everything's been said, everything's been wrapped up. We're moving on from this just hellish experience, and then the film wraps up. Cut to credits. Now a couple things I want to talk about too before we get to some questions that I have for you, okay. and. Again, talking about this, this cask is all about the director, the man himself, William Friedkin, who I, I, I find a very fascinating filmmaker. And, you know, he tried a lot of different, you know, techniques. This was a film that went 100 days over schedule and millions of dollars over budget. And I think the most legendary thing out of this, again, we talked about the lack of music in certain scenes. This film was going to have a whole orchestrated score by Lalo Schrifen. You know Lalo Schrifen. He did the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun Mission Impossible theme. 
He did a whole score for it, and they freaking listened to it and was just like, this is a piece of shit. And he literally threw it across the parking lot <laughs> on the Warner Brothers lot. And he's like, that's where that piece of shit belongs. Mm-hmm. Like, who does that? Right. The rumor in the horror world is that that unused score became the score for the Amityville horror. Interesting. There's no, like, like kind of, like, definitive answer on that, but I find that fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, he said, and we're going to talk about them a lot next week, had he known about Tangerine Dream prior to The Exorcist, he would have had them do the music for the score. But it's probably even better that he didn't know because the way that they just use sound and music already sparingly, that's a tone in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So all these techniques on the freezer and just everything is just it's so masterful on, on, on his part. So let's just talk a little bit about the film itself. Released on December 26th, 1973. Now, I can think of two very secular days in the world. Yeah. Christmas and Easter. Mm -hmm. We're like a couple weeks away from Easter. Right. To be a Warner Brothers executive and saying, you know, we got this movie about this demonic possession, and we've seen it, and it's going to test the limits. Let's release it the day after Christmas. That sounds like a disaster. Right. Not a disaster at all. Off of a twelve million million dollar budget, made four hundred and forty one million nineteen seventy three money. That's a lot, big money. When you adjust for inflation, and when we do that, Gone with the Wind's the biggest money maker. It's number nine. Wow. Of everything, if that film came out today, it would make one billion dollars just in the U.S. alone. My goodness, that's how much money. Mm-hmm. It was a total phenomenon, and then we get into the audience reaction and people vomiting and freaking out and passing out. Like it was, there was always jokes that the, like people, the exorcist would sell out and they would still sell tickets to have people watch people in the lobby of how they were. It's just a joke, mm. but that's the effect this had on, on people yeah. just across the United States. And then when we talk about the critical praise of it, first horror film nominated for best picture, 10 nominations, one, two for bloody screenplay that <laughs> freaking helped him out immensely with yeah. And for the sound mixing, but actress, supporting actress, supporting actor, like the big stuff, Friedkin got nominated again for director, added to the National Film Registry. I mean, I think there's a reason that we say this is the scariest movie of all time. And to still say that in 2020, this is 1973, that's, I think, the biggest praise you could ever give this film. It's immense. Yeah. 45 years old, and it's still... Probably for me, this is probably around the fifth or sixth viewing. It's been a few years. Yeah. A lot of it I had forgotten. Um, Especially when I can say something that my bread and butter Halloween. And I was like, yeah, maybe there's some stuff in that that hasn't like, it's not as scary as it might have been in 78. But the stuff in this film, it still packs a, a, such a punch that just leaves you just like, oh, God. Yeah, like, there isn't a bad scene where you're like, oh, this movie's really good except for this scene. Mm-hmm. And that's even the hospital stuff, which I found arduously long in the book like get on with that already mm-hmm. in the movie mm. it's better yeah way better a lot of times people come say well the book is better mm-hmm. there is no question it's it's not even close yeah the movie is and that's a great book that's yeah. a pulitzer prize level winning book mm-hmm. bestseller for i think i said 28 weeks it's like it's a big hit huge yeah and the movie is infinitely better than the novel yeah all right question time matt i was waiting for this What's your favorite tasting note scene? You know, kind of hard to have a favorite scene in a film like this, but what would that be for you? Is favorite the word you, you want me to stick to favorite? Yeah, I guess. Oh, man. Um, 
Let me go first, and I'll just kind of, to me, it, there's a lot of quiet in what's unspoken. I said it earlier. It's really that scene between Karis and Marin on the stairwell and what's not being spoken that I think speaks volumes to the situation at hand. That's a acting performance that you can't teach. That's a directing thing that's impossible to, to bottle. It's just the perfect storm of filmmaking right there in that one sequence. Okay, so I'm going to go with something a little bit different. Okay. Um, I think it's done good in the book and in the movie. Early in the film, we see a scene where Father Karras is just, I think, walking home from watching some of the action at Georgetown that's happening on set, and we see him getting ready to catch the subway. I think it's to go visit his mom. Mm -hmm. And there is a street urchin (laughs) in the corner that he knows is going to ask him for a handout. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do to the least of my people, you do unto me, blah, 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 blah. Sermon, Sunday school, (laughs) gospel, right? Yep, yep. And we, he knows in the book that this guy's going to roll up on him and ask him for money, and he's going to stink like three-day-old Jen, and yada, yada. And in the movie, you get the same thing much quicker. I think that's the part that I like the best, because you just see in that moment... Can you have an awful boy, father? Yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm, I'm Catholic. <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> he doesn't want any part of it. Yep. He is, on as a, as a Jesuit missionary... Mm-hmm. That's his sole purpose is to help that guy. Well, another great sequence of him literally saying nothing that speaks volumes of how he reacts to that. He runs away on the train to hide. He's so far removed from his mission. He's just done with it, man. And that's going to be the guy that has to bring Reagan back. It's. I'm just going to tell you, the movie lets you know at that moment, it's not going to be done through faith. It's going to be done through fisticuffs. Mm-hmm. I think there's plenty of these. Time for have to have an... <laughs> Oh, my God, yeah. I need to take a shot moment of this film. I mean, take your pick. For me, it has been and always will be the cerebral angiography scene. That is hard to stomach. And then just the the way the use of sound and how much we're shown of it, it just seems just so real for its own good. It's terrible. Yeah. I already mentioned it, right? Mm -hmm. It's that scene, the crucifix scene. Uh, I don't ever need to see that scene again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's really well done, and I'll give him credit for doing it. It's just, man, that's hard to watch. Um, so I guess to that, should we raise him up? I'm not saluting that. I'm saluting the directorial courage to show that. <laughs> Literally courage. That's something that could like end your career. Literally end your career. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that next week. <laughs> I, I got to tell you. Yeah. So the translation of Friedkin. Mm-hmm. From German is, um, I think it's chosen one. Mm. Ooh. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Sorry, no, it's not. It's Child of Peace. Okay. But it's biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously of Jewish lineage in some regard. I would love to see Friedkin's take <clears throat> on the non-secular approach that, probably not orthodox, but a Jewish man took making this movie and the trouble with blasphemy in so doing. Yeah. He had to have been struggling with some of this on set himself. Well, that's why Blatty wanted him. He wanted someone that wasn't tied to religion in the way that, you know, someone like us might approach the material. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think anyone in the Jewish faith is a big fan of Satan either. Oh no. Yeah. So (sighs) that's a whole story too. I would love to sit William Friedkin down and probably could get him now after what he's done to his career (laughs) and just say, can you just talk about 
the issues with this film that you ran into in your own in your own beliefs. He's a fascinating listen. You can watch so many interviews with him on because of that honesty. I mean, if he's going to tell you something fucking sucks, he's going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I love that because Carpenter's the same way. Yeah. He's like, yeah, the fog. Yeah, we did it for some money. Yeah, it was okay. Like, who's going to be like Spielberg? Like, is like always like really pro. Like, all my films are kind of pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's these guys that are just like, well, I'm going to tell you the truth. Um. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, who's the master distiller on this this film? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Go ahead. It's Linda Blair. Um, to take someone who's and I mean that as much as I've praised. William Friedkin's, I imagine one of us has got to do him, so I'm going to be the uh, contrarian Maybe here. we'll get to him next week. It's hard to do a cask on William Friedkin and not give him Master Distiller every week, but I think I gave it to him last week, or was it Hackman? You get, well, We both did Hackman. Okay, well, we'll hit Friedkin, I'm sure, at some point. Yeah. I think Linda Blair, at 12 years old, to pull this off in oh, her initial acting God, performance yes. is... I don't even want to say she's not acknowledged. Everyone recognizes this one of the best childhood performances. I would put this up there with Natalie Portman and the professional is the two best ever. Oh yeah. You're pretty, you're in rarefied air, especially what you're asking of them to do. Right. Yeah. How does that girl know how to pull that off under, because I'm sure she was not well-schooled in what possession looks like. Who was in 1973, much less at the age of whatever she 12 ish. Yeah. There's no way that a girl should have that astute an ability to perform that status of one's, you know, life. Mm-hmm. Look, I can't even put like eye drops in my eye, but to put in those like ridiculous contact lenses that, the, that she has to put in to have this demonic look, yeah, yeah that get kudos for that, mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, yeah, Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, really everyone it gives great performances of especially of just what they're put through is just the gamut of just bullshit and just <laughs> craziness like <laughs> asking your actors are just like literally like we're gonna snack you on this harness i'm gonna yank it as hard as i can and bursting like blows her back out for the rest of her life like that sucks boy doesn't it? <laughs> you can attest to that yeah I've already said it multiple times. To me, the master distillers on this, the sound designers, it's a character in and of itself that's not even on the screen. It's what's not seen. It's what's heard. The guttural sounds of Reagan, that like labored breathing, the yells of Pazuzu, the fighting dogs, the medical equipment, just the way sound just envelops you as as something. And this was something that was taught to me when I went to, to film school was just, it, it became its own beast. And I can't think, other than maybe Eraserhead, <laughs> I can't think of a film that's done that better, that's made it part of the film that you're watching. It's it's crazy. Yeah, those two guys, yeah, they get all the praise from me because that's something that's just not spoken about. You could say a movie's great, but you can say it doesn't sound great. Yeah, who cares? In this film, I care. I think that's such a compliment, Jesse. Mm-hmm. For you to take something that is, young David Lynch and obscure, not <clears throat> studio finance to be palatable enough obscurity so that the masses will see it. Eraserhead, 1977, David Lynch, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. To take that and compare it to Tentpole on the day after Christmas, studio system, Warner Brothers, just coming off Academy Award winning film. Like this should have been a musical. Yeah. Or something big and shiny and flashy and happy. Mm-hmm. And nope, it's this, which is, it's big and shiny and flashy and scary as hell. Mm-hmm. 
I, that's such a compliment. I, I kind of like laughed as you said it, but it really is yeah. such a helping of praise that you've just bestowed upon the sound editing and the sound score of this film. Yeah. To, to that. Deserves it. Yeah. Now to rate this thing, we got rock gut, well, call, single barrel, and top shelf. Matt, are you going to go five for five? What are you doing? Yeah, I have to. I mean, it defines an entire generation. I like that. Hashtag Rice Smile. Generation, yeah. An entire generation of film. Mm -hmm. Changed my life. Generation and scene uh, uh, tonery. (laughs) Generation and scene tonery. You're going to put that out. There we go. Okay. Yeah, man, this movie is a landmark film in horror. I would argue it's the most important horror film of all time. Yep. How can you not? And and then on top of it, I like it. Yeah. So I don't know what else I would need to score this as top shelf. It's it's not even top shelf. This is Hall of Fame, and I don't mean like fucking Gary Carter from the Mets in the Hall of Fame. I mean like Hall of Fame, <laughs> Hall of Fame. What the hell is that? Yeah. That, you know, and also I have to say that's the first F bomb I've <clears throat> dropped in weeks. You, you deserve, I've been good. Huh? You deserve one after going through this film. I know. Yeah. So, I, and I don't mean like, okay, we'll give it away to Gary Carter. I guess how is Gary Carter anyway? Yeah. This is Babe Ruth level Hall of Fame kind of level film it's up there with the Pantheon. Yeah, man. This is like one of the. Again, I don't have them in front of me. 10 greatest films of all time insofar as importance. Look, this is not something got a couple hours on Friday night to enjoy myself. I'm going to pop in. I don't need to see this movie again for a number of years, Another maybe ten, 10 years. If, if, if even ever, Yeah, I don't know if I ever need to see this film again, but I'm not going to tell you it's not an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. You said it so important in its construction. I'm going top shelf as well. Not only is this, one of the best horror films ever made. This is just one of the best films ever made. And when a film can jump genres, and again, that's why I love like that. It was rewarded for so much because again, horror is the bastard stepchild of like film genre topics. And for this film to rise to the level that it did to make as much money as it did, that we're still talking about it and we're still affected by it as a legacy unto of itself. One of the best films I think ever made and that's to freaking the acting, the just everything involved in making this thing. Yeah, top shelf. It's right up there for me with Empire Strikes Back and Vertigo, and it deserves to be. It's it packs a wallop. So I might be five for five, but I think you're four for five. Yeah, I didn't give Quiet Place. I did single barrel that week. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we're pretty good. We're in good air. But this it's good to talk about some good films, like especially during this crazy time, like instead of just garbage. <laughs> For everybody out there, it's easier to do the good films than it is the bad films. It's funnier to do the bad films, right. but it's so it's a lot taxing. Watching Batman versus Superman was such a chore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. That's not pleasant. (laughs) Gosh. Good God. Okay, Dick Smith had some great makeup effects on Father Marin and Linda Blair as Reagan Pazuzu in this film. What's your favorite makeup creation from the 1970s? I'm not going to let myself do science fiction. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make myself go another way just because I just want to be that guy. Would you... Throw something at me if I told you it was a sports film? Nope. It's Rocky. 
cut me, man. <laughs> the way he is beat to pieces Ooh, in that God, film. I didn't even think about that one. Shit. And the swelling. Not the whole film, because oh, yeah. there, there's no makeup needed when he's, hey, uh, Polly, uh, he says it's here, I'll call you later. Like, we don't need to make up for that. But in the ring with Apollo and the damage that those guys take, whose defense is, I'm going to block every punch with my face. Oh, I love it. Man, he is beat to hell. You know which one I always remember is when Apollo gives him that like hard like left right at the end of like round one and it like bust breaks his nose. Yeah. And it's just like yeah. and he goes back to his corner just like clutching his nose and he's like, Yeah, it's broken. One of the things that has to happen with taking that much damage is it has to have an effect on the people. And both of those characters by the end of the film, and it it's pretty consistent in all the movies, but nineteen seventy seven, so this is yeah, the one. Pretty good. Yeah, it's just really, really and here's the other thing too. Bright lights, they're moving, so they're sweating. That makeup's going to run and streak. And have you ever tried to put makeup on wet skin? It's hard. Yeah. Like, it's hard. That's why, like, they, it's hard. So I don't even want to get into how I know that, but <laughs> story for another day. Okay. It's masterfully done. The mouse that he has underneath his left eye, it just looks fantastic. So I'm going to go with, there's other ones. When, we could say Star Wars, but of course it's Star Wars. And then when they cut him, so we Blood can squirts. see. Oh, God. Yeah, that's. Cut me, Mick. Yeah. Cut me. And they, oh, like, that's literally cutting the eyelid open so he can see out of his eye skin flap. So that he can watch the punches before he blocks them with his face. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it coming, so I caught that one square on the chin. <laughs> oh, God, that killed me. <laughs> Okay, Rocky. I'm kind of going with something out of science fiction, too, because as much as I was duped about Max von Sydow as Father Marin and his age, yeah. I was equally duped as Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Good one. I'm going to have to look. That might have been Dick Smith, too. I'm going to look it up, but it's the cotton balls in the mouth. It's mm -hmm. the aging. It's the hair. It's this performance that must have been a beast to just even wrangle on set. It, it's... So good. Honorable mention, though, we mentioned it earlier, David Lynch's eraser head, yeah. and in particular, whatever bird creature that his, him and his wife birthed. Oh, gosh. Like, yeah. anyone out there wants to have the most uncomfortable movie night of all time, put on eraser head. No one will ever be the same. <laughs> well, and then follow it up if you want a double feature with Wild at Heart. I and mean, we can say Blue Velvet, but I actually think Wild at Heart is, is even more troubling than Blue Velvet is. What about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me? I actually used to love that movie. And, you know, I used to I used to work at a video store and people would come in and oftentimes they would ask me, what's a good movie to watch? And I used to purposely take the most yuppie-ish of them and send them to Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me to take that home. Because I just knew there was no way they were going to get it because they didn't watch the series. And even if you did watch the series, it still didn't make sense. But I kind of loved that movie. Oh, we got, we got to do a Lynch cask. One do of these we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah, we got to we got to like make this as uncomfortable as possible. We need to make careful selections in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm picking Eraserhead. That's that's a lock. Well, it's got to be Blue Velvet then too. No, about Mulholland Drive. Okay. All right. I'd be okay with those three. And Dick Smith did do The Godfather, so Perfect. followed The Godfather up with The Exorcist. What a legend! Yeah, and that guy's at the top of his game. Excellent. Well, this has been a blast to talk. A big film to cover on any podcast. Like, there's a lot of podcasts that will cover The Exorcist, and I don't envy any of you because it's such just so much material to discuss and cover and yeah. just emotionally put on your shoulders. Next week, we're going to wrap up the Friedkin cask with, again, a film that may as well just be called Lost for Years because it's impossible to find. 
It's lucky that I even have a copy of it, and it looks amazing, by the way. We're going to wrap up with 1977 Sorcerer. This is a remake of Henry George Clouseau's The Wages of Fear. And Matt, I am so excited to show this to you for the fr- I've been talking about it for years. years. Just saying, you need to see this thing. Like, it's just like no one talks about it. No one's seen it. No one's this. Like, I, I just want to show it to you. So now you're going to come over. We're going to watch. Raw watch for Matt. He's never seen this film before. First time through. Yeah. I'm not going to read anything. <clears throat> I'm not going to watch the trailer. I'm going to go in as a complete brand new neophyte watch this first time through come in blind blind because what's nice about what's going to be nice about it too is that we've watched french connection and exorcist so we kind of know freaking style a little bit in the way he paces and sets things because sorcerer fits that mold so well and it's what happened more behind the scenes and release dates that totally killed this film and kind of his career at the same time and we'll talk about Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now because it's all somehow related. So slight tie to Star Wars too, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Yeah, ultimate tie to Star Wars. So yeah. I'm I'm excited to see that. And as if you can, it's on iTunes. You can rent on iTunes for like two ninety nine. I recommend seeing that. Rise Smile Homework. If you can find it, watch it. Mm-hmm. It'll be well worth your time. Excellent. Excellent. So until then, cheers, Matt. It's been a it's been a hell episode this time so i'm gonna i think i need to go to church or something but since we're social distancing and can't go to church i think i'm gonna go watch the mass for the shut-ins on tv because i just gotta cleanse my soul (laughs) brought my rosary so maybe we can pray it together excellent we'll see you all next week have a good week everybody stay safe and we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to rye smile films be sure to subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify podbean stitcher tune in or if you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Exorcist is property of Warner Brothers Pictures and Hoya Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, may the power of Christ compel you. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ! The power of Christ compels you! 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 The power of Christ compels you!